You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. Welcome to Season 4 of Global IQ Minute. I'm Jim Falk. Today we are celebrating our 100th episode. You know, the program started with The Economist when we interviewed a number of journalists, and then we realized that we were missing opportunities with guest speakers that were coming through the Council. We spoke with the World Affairs Councils of America. They thought it was a good idea, and we began to distribute our podcast to members of the Council as well to some of the councils around the United States. It's always an opportunity for our guests and our members to exchange ideas. I'm very, very grateful to the listeners, those of you who have taken the time to share Global IQ Minute with your friends, and those of you who have been kind enough to review the program, especially those of you who have given it five stars. We thought it would be fun on this 100th episode to take a few excerpts from some of the interviews that we thought were particularly compelling and ones that I really enjoyed. First, we'll start with General David Petraeus. He's discussed being an eternal optimist, and what he says is certainly true today, if not more necessary. Well, certainly Americans should be rational optimists. I think we have enormous opportunities. We are already exploiting them in many cases, leading the world in so doing when it comes to the IT revolution, the energy revolution, which obviously citizens here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area know very, very well. Absolutely. Uh, The manufacturing revolution and the life sciences revolution. And all of these are a result of the unique combination of attributes and qualities that our great country and our citizens have demonstrated over centuries. I actually teach a course, in fact, it's called the North American Decades, which is how I describe the period we're in currently. I have to be honest, I was probably most nervous when I met Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. He was discussing his book on international law, and I did read the book twice. Here in this excerpt, he discusses the motivation for writing the book against the death penalty. I wanted to show people now a couple of things. One, of course, I'm always writing to try to explain to people, particularly younger people, how does our court work? It's not the CIA. You know, there's not a big secrecy about it, but by learning how we work, by learning how we make our decisions, by learning the nature of the cases in front of us, I think these students can learn a little bit more about the Constitution, which they need to know. Ask people in public life, what's the biggest problem facing the country? I think they'll say it's a a lack of understanding uh, among younger generations of what we used to call 12th grade civics. How does the city work? What's a legislature? What's a city councilman? What does the mayor do? What does the governor do? And, and, and what does the president and the Congress and the Supreme Court, what do they do and how can you affect them? What's your role compared to them? He also discusses how the top court in our land stays harmonious, a lesson we can all learn from. Well, we make an effort. I mean, it's not always harmonious. I'd say 50% of the cases are unanimous. That's true. 20% are 5-4. Not always the same five, same four. They're tough cases. We take a case because good judges in the lower courts have come to different conclusions on the same question. But what you read in the newspaper are the cases that people want to read about. So they're the hot button cases, not necessarily the most important. And they give the impression that we're divided all over the place. We're not. We're not. 
we make an effort to get together and sometimes we just cannot agree. Always civil. I have never heard in that room uh, a voice raised in anger in the conference room. I have never heard in the conference room one person say something slighting or rude about some other person, not even as a joke. It's very professional. We discuss what we think. We listen to what the other person thinks. Go around in order. Nobody speaks twice till everybody's spoken once. And then some back and forth, focusing on what the others have said with the hope that maybe uh, you'll be persuaded a little, they'll be persuaded a little, and we don't always reach a consensus, but we try. In 2017, we were joined by Manal Al-Sharif, one of the most dynamic women I've ever met. She's from Saudi Arabia, a human rights activist. She was one of the first women rights activists who really encouraged her country to make it possible for women to get the right to drive. Do you know the term driving while black? Of course. We have the term driving while female. If you look at the civil rights movement in the U.S., all the things that the black people were banned from, today the Saudi women are banned from. We don't enter the buildings from the main doors, we enter from the back doors. We're segregated between the sexes, the men and women, everywhere, from mosques, from hospitals, from restaurants, public places, banks, schools. And women needs permission from a man, a special permission from a man. He's called the legal guardian. So everyone is assigned a legal guardian that has to give her permission to be citizen. So we're not considered full citizens in my country. We have to do everything through this man. And the guardian changed. So if I'm born, my guardian will be my father. If I get married, the guardianship system will move it to my husband. If I don't have a husband and I don't have a father, it could be even my adult son who's 18 years old. Because he's a boy, he can become my own guardian. You notice you're wearing a blue bracelet with some Arabic letter. Oh, what's it say? I am my own guardian. I am my own guardian. So this is the movement that July 6th, it will be one year anniversary of this movement. And there's a picture of a car. Yes, we used as a symbol of resistance. It's to, to stop the guardianship system in Saudi Arabia. A program that people really wanted to hear was Jim Clapper. He was director of national intelligence from 2010 to 2017. He discussed intelligence in the United States. For the United States of America, I do feel that the arrangement we have, as awkward as it might be and not possibly consistent with what a Harvard Business School graduate might design, I do think it's best and it balances the professionalism, the expertise, and the capability that we need with, I think, civil reason and privacy. There was a lot of discussion in the run-up to having creating a department of intelligence, just taking all the those 16 components mm. of the intelligence community and crashing them together into one juggernaut department. For lots of reasons, we, and good reasons, that wasn't done, and I don't think that would be in the best interest of the country. I think that the notion of a juggernaut, all-encompassing intelligence, single intelligence organization like that, would pose a real specter of threat to civil liberties and privacy. So I think the arrangement we have, as inefficient as it might be, is, is best for us. And also the meaning of the phrase, truth to power. Truth to power means conveying the best facts available, the, the best truth that we can come up with, which may not be perfect. You know, the whole purpose of it, why does anybody do intelligence? In the end, it's to reduce uncertainty. Rarely can you eliminate it for a decision maker, but you can reduce it. You want to provide that decision maker the best information that you can, whether that decision maker is sitting in the Oval Office, or if I could stretch the metaphor, an Oval Foxhole. And it's imperative that the intelligence community continue to convey that truth power, even the power chooses to ignore that truth.
In late September, we welcomed former Secretary of State John Kerry. He spoke about a lot of topics, but the one that was most interesting was when he talked about the Iran deal, the JCPOA that he helped negotiate, and what he thought it meant that the United States has withdrawn from this agreement. The risks are that, I mean, first of all, the President has isolated the United States and himself from our strongest allies. We were always cognizant that Iran is a problem. We never took away the sanctions on missiles. We never took away the sanctions on human rights, on transfer of weapons to Yemen. We always understood these are problems. But we believed it was better to deal with those problems with an Iran that doesn't have a nuclear weapon. Rather than pull out of the deal, lose the support of the Chinese, Russians, Germans, French, and British, and applying pressure on a red. So we're going it alone now. And to the great anger and frustration of our European friends who believe the United States is strong-arming them into who they can do business with and how they have to behave in the marketplace. This has long-term impact on those relationships. And I think what the President has done is actually strengthen the hardliners in Iran because there's now nationalism that is much stronger in Iran, uniting the country in opposition to what they feel is an unfair effort by the United States that isn't keeping the agreement. So we've broken the agreement, Iran has not. That liberates Iran to do other things, and we will not have the support of our best allies at the UN Security Council if all of a sudden something explodes and they, we go to them and say, well, you've got to be with us, they'll say, to hell with you. You guys broke this. It's your deal. One of our very first shows was with Ambassador Robert Jordan. He is now our vice chair here at the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, and he discussed his book, Desert Diplomat, that foreshadowed Mohammed bin Salman's growing influence and power in Saudi Arabia. Certainly with the short term, I'm confident uh, of their stability. Uh, but there are a couple of cracks uh, in the foundation that I think we need to uh, keep aware of. Um, the, the king has advanced a lot of his own people's interests and appointments uh, in a much more aggressive way than some of his predecessors did. Uh, he's named his own son, who's about 29 years old, as not only the defense minister, but the head of one of the two uh, sort of super committees that run the government, this one having to do with the economy. Uh, and so he's really empowered someone who has very little experience and is not very well known uh, to uh, Western observers. Uh, this bears watching, uh, partly because he is largely responsible for the Saudi adventure in Yemen right now. Uh, it's not going so well, and if it has a very bad outcome, uh, he well may be blamed for that uh, by the other members of the royal family who resent this young fellow coming in and having such enormous responsibility because of his father. Uh, another angle on that could be that uh, the father would try to protect Mohammed bin Salman uh, in such a situation and perhaps blame someone else, say the, uh, the crown prince, uh, Mohammed bin Nayef. So you've got jealousies, you've got rivalries, uh, you've got power uh, issues here that are not fully resolved. Uh, and uh, I, I think while clearly there has been a consensus to uh, allow this to happen, there is, it is likely not without some dissent, and that dissent could start rumbling further uh, if things go badly. So as we begin 2019, here's to a peaceful and healthy new year to all of our listeners and a new season of Global IQ Minute. I hope you'll join us next week when I'll be talking with General Stanley McChrystal. Thanks again for listening.
Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. The Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys and 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.